it may not seem like it relates, but this is the Sabbath before trumpets, as we heard in the announcements. Trumpets is on its way. And this being the Sabbath before, I did want to give something that was meat in due season, yet at the same time, this may not seem like it is. I, I think it is. Christianity differs from so many religions and philosophies in the world. Our faith is anchored in historical claims. You, know, you look at some, you look at, and people argue how much history is involved in, in each of these or how much history is essential to various faiths. You look at Buddhism and Hinduism and some others, and they have a, a history of teachers to a certain extent. Uh, the things that they, they've taught have been enshrined and put together in books. A lot of religions are based on certain philosophies and certain cosmologies, but Christianity is rooted in a historical claim. That is, we say there was an event in history that was miraculous and true. That if you could go back in time, you would see it. Uh, and it left historical evidence. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that was something that actually happened. And uh, Mr. Frank gave a split uh, about this uh, some, some weeks ago or months ago, and I was really excited when he, when he did, because it's one of my favorite topics, and I mentioned that I appreciated that he, that he brought it up, because it is central to our faith, and, and sometimes we don't, we don't talk about it as frequently. And yet it is really important, when you really do think about the holy days, for instance, what is the Feast of Trumpets? We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, day of atonement. We believe that Jesus Christ is going to command his angels to put away the devil for a thousand years. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? We believe that the kingdom of God is going to reign. There will be a millennium in which Christ himself reigns and his people under him. Then the last great day, we believe that like Christ was resurrected, like we will have been resurrected, others will be resurrected, though to physical life, to have their opportunity as well. All of that doesn't happen if Jesus Christ was not raised from the grave. If that's not an actual historical fact, if it didn't actually happen, then all of that is a fantasy. There's no one to return from heaven to conquer the kingdoms of the world. There's not going to be any sort of reign for a thousand years. All of it is a lie. And our faith is just a cruel joke. And there are those in this day and age that are pretty desperate to convince you that it's nothing but a lie. Now, some of us, we've been around for a while, right? Our, we feel our faith is pretty settled. It'd be pretty hard to convince me, say, you might say, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I know he did. You know, I, I believe that. And there are generations of Americans, that older generations, that claim to believe that. They don't know all the details about it. They don't understand Jesus like we do. Frankly, they believe in the resurrection of a, a false Jesus. But still, they don't necessarily doubt that the Jesus they believe rose from the dead. But the younger you get, uh, the more those claims make a difference. You expose yourself to the schools and philosophies of this world, and you'll be surrounded by teachers who don't believe it's actually a fact. They believe it's just a yeah, part of the tale of our religion, just as mythical as tales of Thor and Zeus and all the rest. It's something that Christians made up a long time ago uh, and that we just happen to be too dumb to believe. And you'll have instructors and teachers trying to convince you that that's the case. People are very intelligent, very credentialed. And if you think about it from their perspective, you can understand why someone might think that. I mean, what do we really believe? If we, 
we can take for granted because we live in a quote-unquote Christian culture and people talk about Jesus as if these things are true and there was something miraculous about him. But if you really think about it, it's actually quite a claim to believe that 2,000 years ago, almost 1,990 years ago, that a man who was alive in Judea died, was, was uh, executed, and that his body was a corpse for three days. Three full days, his body was a corpse. And that after three days and three nights, it wasn't anymore. And that he was alive, exactly as he said he would be. It's, it's kind of a thing that would reasonably be difficult for a lot of people to swallow. The greatest testimony of which is recorded in a book in which there are also a few talking snakes and donkeys. And sometimes I don't think we, we give enough, especially in the modern day, enough kind of uh, benefit of a doubt to some who don't believe these things and don't recognize the kind of culture in which they've been reared to doubt those things. Back when I was in my early 30s, I worked with, uh, well, actually late 20s, early 30s, there was a young woman where I was an actuary, and she she was one of those fast-track programs. She was, she was a intern with us at age 19, and I think got her degree at 20. And she literally had been raised to be an agnostic, or actually an atheist. She was raised to be an atheist. I've mentioned her before in other sermons. Uh, that's something that would be a little more unheard of a few generations ago, and that actually was sort of just about a generation ago. And nowadays, it's not just parents rearing their children to not necessarily believe in these things or to doubt them. Uh, but now all of our institutions tend to be geared towards doubting those things. And yet at the same time, again, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, we'll talk about the consequences of that a little bit later in the sermon in the earlier part. Everything falls apart. And yet if it is true, if this man who was dead for three days actually did rise from the grave, then everything's back on the table. And then everything we teach is about the most important stuff you could possibly teach in anything that mankind's ever heard. Atonement really does picture this malevolent entity who is being placed in a pit where he cannot escape for a thousand years. And this divine being will rule the entire world with all of those to whom he's promised a position next to him to reign as well. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, we are all fools. If he did, then everything we teach and everything we know is important. So it sort of hinges on that claim. And so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to briefly explain biblically in more detail what it is that I just mentioned, how important it is that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. I'd like to explain why historically it is a reasonable belief to have. It's not something you have to go on pure blind faith to believe, but it is actually a reasonable belief uh, to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead based on the evidence. And then I'd like to highlight a couple of lessons that we gain from meditating on all of this. And the title of the sermon today is simply the question, Did He Rise? Did He Rise? So before we jump into it, there's a few... The groundwork is kind of important. There's a few things I would like to say. And one, I'd like to give some credit where it's due. I wish I could say that 
that I was smart enough to think of a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about today. And it is a large discussion. We're going to be boiling it down to to its essence. There's a lot of great details to discuss. It's a wonderful thing to talk about over coffee. Uh, we're going to boil it down to just the, uh, the nitty-gritty when we get to it. But I'd be glad to talk about more details uh, with anyone who is interested. And I do want to give credit where it's due. There's a lot of researchers out there that work on this kind of thing. Uh, none of them that I know of, that I'll mention at least, in terms of in the church. Uh, one is the uh, uh, apologist, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. I'm a real fan of his work. Also, N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican, I think. A very famous writer and has actually... It's really sad when you're a part of your faith, in this case, Anglicanism, and how you make yourself known is by actually defending the historicity of Jesus and the resurrection. You think that'd be the norm for your faith, but instead, these guys can actually stand out from the rest of their fellow, you know, priests or preachers by actually defending the truth of these things. That's kind of the day and age in which we, in which we live. Uh, and they've done some good research in that regard. Second, I'd like to highlight here at the beginning that I see in looking at this a reflection of what Mr. Armstrong frequently admonished us to do in his life. He would frequently say, don't just assume God exists. Prove it for yourself. Prove it for yourself. And if you think you have proven it, you'll find times will come and test you to show you that perhaps your proof wasn't enough that you're taking too much for granted. Mr. Armstrong would challenge us to do that, not to just take it for granted, but to prove that these things are so, as Dr. Meredith so often said, so that you know that you know. And I see questioning this, whether or not this man who lived so long ago really did rise from the dead as being a reflection of Mr. Armstrong, and for that matter, Mr. Meredith's frequent encouragement in that regard. In particular, uh, for those amongst us here who are young, those who are young adults or those who are teenagers, all the more you tend to live in a world in which these things are questioned. And it's worth the time to invest a little bit to ask yourself why you know these things are true or do you know these things are true. And what I'm going to talk about today is an essentially an, a, an apologetics approach, a defense from some historical facts. There are other ways, like some of you, more aged in the church and more experienced in the church, having been converted for decades, you know by now, you know in your experience, there's no other way to explain the spiritual help and guidance that you have received in your life and the wisdom you've experienced through the church, and you have that evidence. But for those who are in situations where you haven't been able to experience that yet, uh, and you know you're going to be challenged perhaps by friends, perhaps by uh, teachers, perhaps by professors, perhaps by co-workers. We're still under the obligations that the Apostle Peter talks about in terms of being able to give an answer to those who question, who have questions about the hope that lies within us. And so all the more for those amongst us who are younger, I would encourage you to dive into these things and really explore them and make sure that you're grounded in them. Because either the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact, like any other historical event, or it's fiction. It might as well be a Spider-Man comic book if it didn't really happen. And so it's worth trying to determine one way or the other. Third, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but this is one of the things I did want to cover in the sermon. And that is, don't just take my word for how important it is. Let's actually look at the Bible's own witness to how important the truth of this is. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll just start in verse 12. We're going to read just uh, uh, some portions here for a while. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. 
Paul says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Now let me pause here and say that many influential quote unquote Christian teachers out there don't actually believe in some of these major elements themselves. Uh, there's at least one that I can think of. I won't say his name just in case I'm wrong, but even if I'm wrong about him, I, I'm almost certain that I'm right. Uh, but there's several others I don't think like him. They don't think it's important whether he actually rose from the dead, whether he was actually born of a virgin. They don't think those things are important. What's important is the great teaching that we get out of Christianity, and they essentially turn him into someone like, like a Buddha or someone who just has a great philosophy to live by. But Paul says otherwise. Paul literally says, if Christ is not risen, if he did not rise from the grave, then our preaching is empty. You should not listen to anything that we have to say. It's nothing but empty words. Your faith, he says, is empty. It is devoid of content. As if it were the Tomorrow's World magazine and that was your faith and you opened it up to the table of contents and there's nothing. Because your faith literally has nothing of any worth or value. It says in verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up based on what you're thinking. If in fact the dead do not rise. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Again, some of us I know in this room have committed sins. I'm really sure of it. I know that I have. I know at least one person in this room has committed sins. Uh, I, I'm not going to say his name. It rhymes with Schmally Schmidt. But uh, you know, I know one person who has committed sins in this room and is so grateful for the forgiveness that comes through Christ so that he doesn't bear the weight of those anymore. And he's able to move forward in life without those things dragging him down. And yet, if Christ did not rise from the grave, I still bear the weight of every single one of them. And so do you. So again, moving on, verse 18, he says, And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, when he says perished here, he doesn't just mean dead. He means dead forever. He means they're gone. They will never come back. There is no promise of the Feast of Trumpets, of seeing our loved ones in the church rising in the sky to meet Jesus Christ if he did not rise from the grave. If a literal man who was dead for three days did not suddenly come back to life after those three days, we will never see anyone in the church uh, whom we're looking forward to seeing. The promise of the last great day? Nada. Nothing. It's a fantasy. It's a story that you tell people to make them feel better at funerals. If Christ did not rise from the grave. Continuing verse 19, it gets pretty bad. If in this life only, that is, if this is the only life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You, know, you pity people? He says, you know, pity us most, if that's the case. In fact, jump down to verse 32. Verse 32. Paul says, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, 
What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. Either this man rose from the grave or else why am I bothering to do anything but eat and drink and party until I die? And I think we've talked about it before. It's been a while. But there is a philosopher, Albert uh, Camus. Uh, his name is spelled funny, uh, but uh, Albert Camus. I just probably offended all the French and such, or whatever the origin of that name is. Uh, but Albert Camus, and he was a famous atheistic philosopher, and he concluded that given that there is really no God, then there's no actual real value or purpose to life, and therefore the only philosophical, philosophically significant question that we have to answer is whether we should kill ourselves or not. And that's it. And that's, that's what life boils down to. If none of this actually is real, if these things didn't actually happen, we're of all men most pitiable, pitiable, let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And yet, if Christ did rise from the grave, then everything he promised is true. Going back up to verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If he did rise from the grave, then he is returning because he said he would, which is harder to say. I'm going to come back with the cloud. I want to come back in the clouds and bring a kingdom one day. Or, hey, what? When I die, I'm going to come back to life. I think the second one's harder to say and actually have validated. And a guy that pulls that off literally dies, is provably dead for three days and three nights. And then somehow, while he is dead, comes back to life exactly the way he said he was going to. I'm going to listen to what else that guy has to say. He's going to pull off because he's probably going to do it. And so the Feast of Trumpets means something when he prophesies about the final events to come leading to his return. Climaxing in the resurrection of those who have actually trusted in their lives in his name. And then atonement means something when he says, I'm going to ensure the devil is put away for a thousand years. And his kingdom promise that we, we picture in the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles and the times that we're going to celebrate with our second tithe and our fellowship mean something. In fact, if you're a living ed student and we had a forum that I was there and I talked about the pillars of my, my faith and how you need to find yours, there's a reason this one is the second pillar and it's for all of these things. That's for all of these things. Fourth here, before we get to the evidence setting the stage, I want to highlight and I, I hope it's, uh, I hope it doesn't offend anybody for me to say this. Let me actually let me make this clear before I risk offending you. I believe the Bible is God's word and that everything it says is true. If you don't believe that, you're in the wrong church because we literally take every single word seriously. This is where I'm at uh, a loss by not having, by having an iPad Bible. It just doesn't mean the same to say, brethren, do you believe your Bibles? And you hold up an iPad. It's not, it's not the same thing. It's like if I were using my phone. Brethren, do you believe your Bibles? Was, oh, sorry, it's Angry Birds. Let me get that off of there. It's not what I meant for it to be. 
But brethren, if you don't believe your Bibles, you're in the wrong church. We are a Bible-believing church. We believe every single word. We believe when Jesus Christ said that the Scriptures cannot be broken, that that's true. The Scripture cannot be broken. However, as we approach the evidence for the sermon, we're not going to treat the Bible as uh, God's inspired word. Because if it is, then it's easy. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. That's God's word done. You drop the mic and you move on. But increasingly, we have a generation that doesn't believe the Bible. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where it talks about a man coming back from the dead, is one of the reasons they don't believe in the Bible. Because they've never seen anybody raised from the dead. All they know are myths that talk about that kind of thing, not an actual man raising from the dead. And really, if you think about it, even Paul, amongst the Jews, they at least had the benefit of prophecies that they could explain. You've always misunderstood this. It talks about a suffering Messiah, though you didn't realize that. It talks about a Messiah being executed, though you didn't realize that. But when Paul went to Athens, he didn't have access to that. He couldn't point to Jewish prophecies. Where his audience would say, oh man, I didn't realize Jewish prophecies pointed to one of you guys being the ruler of the whole world, including the Greeks and Romans. Move on. You're not, you know, they, they, they wouldn't have accepted that. He actually had to argue about the resurrection of Christ apart from those things. Even the apostles themselves didn't have, whether they went to Jews or Gentiles, they couldn't point to the New Testament as their authority. You didn't have, you know, Peter saying, look, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Believe me, you know, this stuff happened. Right? What they had was their testimony. That they had seen these things. That they, 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 they had to convince people. Even if you're saying, look, the Bible says, if you look at the Old Testament, that a Messiah would die and, 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 uh, and all the rest. They said, well, okay, that's fine, but why is it your guy? Right? You know, why is it your guy? So we're going to treat the Bible, and it makes for a stronger case if we do this, as a historical text. As text that was written at the time that many scholars think that it was, even though a lot of them actually uh, post-date that way too late for many parts of the Bible. We're just going to treat it as a text, a first century text uh, for the things that it says. By the way, if you don't believe the Bible is inspired, I highly recommend Dr. Winnale's booklet, The Bible Fact or Fiction. If you haven't gone through that in a long time, it's worth going through and making sure you believe this book. Uh, it actually needs to be updated a lot. A lot of the evidence is actually the numbers have changed over the years since he first wrote that book, but the principles that he's saying there uh, are still very true. Finally, I'd actually, before we look at the historical situation, I want to address a, a an argument against these things that sometimes comes up that has gained popularity in the last few decades, and it's really one of the dumbest things. But that said, when you first hear dumb things, sometimes they don't come across that dumb, uh, especially when they're said by people who come across really smart. And we do live in a world where people will actually conclude things like the earth is flat and all sorts of other things based on YouTube videos they have seen. Uh, it's, it is interesting how people will try to discount every scientist who says the world is round, all of NASA that says the world is round, and all the other YouTube videos talking about a round earth and these scientists because the set of YouTube videos they have found said the earth is flat. And they'll say, I'm not trusting in people, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm doing my own research. 
well, you're doing your research in a group of people that have, have really come to a wrong conclusion. Why are you actually trusting? You are trusting people. You're trusting what these people, what these people say. And so there are arguments out there. For instance, the one that I will address here that says Jesus never even existed. And that's one I do want to address very quickly just to get out of the way because some of you may encounter that. It's really hip in some circles, honestly, because even, even, Atheists want to look good to their friends, and sometimes you look good by taking the most radical position. So you have these guys say, man, you believe in Jesus? Jesus didn't even exist. I read this guy. He explained that Jesus was a complete myth. And that is just really, I mean, the technical word for arguments like that is just that they're dumb. They're just really, really, really dumb. And let me go ahead and give a witness from people who actually, like, for instance, Bart Ehrman. Some of you have heard of Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar, very much an atheist. Uh, and he has written books to debunk Christianity, to say Jesus didn't say all the things that people say he did. And he wrote a book uh, titled, Did Jesus Exist? Because he says of all the things people say out there, that one really is dumb. He does believe Jesus existed. He says that no, real credible scholars understand that Jesus was a real man uh, and that various facts of his life the Bible talks about are true. For instance, Bart Ehrman wrote this, despite the enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution in Jerusalem, during the reign of the Roman Emperor, uh, Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He says, regardless of what people think, they may hate Christianity with a passion. They may think that it's all a joke and it's a giant lie, but they do agree with these facts. Those are just facts of history. Now, he wrote later, he said, Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they've considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have come, uh, they have some other agenda that this denial serves. And he is an atheist. He definitely does not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but he, he does recognize the facts that Jesus did exist. And you don't have to go back far. I'll just give two examples. You can go back to Tacitus. We say Tacitus. My son Benjamin and I were talking this morning. Is it Tacitus or Tacitus? I think in the Latin you would normally say Tacitus, but we're in America and Americans don't care. And so we tend to say Tacitus. I was looking for the most common usage. And he wrote around 109 AD the following. Now it, part of why Tacitus stands out is because he was, you know, in antiquity, they didn't have a lot of great historians. A lot of them were trying to sell something. And Tacitus stands out. He rejected, he didn't like hearsay. He wanted sources. He actually was much more like a modern historian. Uh, and so Tacitus wrote the following. This is, a, again, this is only 109 AD. It would have been within the lifetime of some people who have still experienced, say, the crucifixion and such. He wrote, consequently, this is uh, how Nero, Emperor Nero, was blamed for the burning of Rome. And, and Nero is trying to put off blame on some scapegoats. So he chooses Christians. He writes, and Tacitus admittedly was not a fan of Nero. He says, consequently, to get rid of that report, that is that Nero was at fault, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. 
It's like one of the best descriptions of Rome. You know, you know, you think of how we talk about Washington, D.C. sometimes, you know, when we're feeling a little more carnal than we should. And man, Tacitus, he admitted like Rome is a cesspool, man. So it's amazing how that fits Acts, right? Because Jesus Christ was crucified and died. And so all of his fans and such, suddenly they got really quiet. Even the apostles were hiding, right? And then suddenly it burst out. And what does Acts say? First in Judea and then eventually the rest of the world. It actually fits the book of Acts to a T. Of course, why did it burst out? Well, because he was resurrected. And then uh, Josephus. Now, Josephus is a bit challenged. And I've seen various dates in terms of when he wrote this. Uh, one person dates Josephus' writing of the antiquities of the Jews to 93 and 94 A.D. Another one a little bit later, 110 A.D., but still right there uh, within a lifespan of the events that we read in terms of the crucifixion. Josephus, a very uh, popular uh, a Jewish historian, a very famous Jewish historian, Part of the problem with Josephus is people think that certain Christians, in terms of translating and, and moving Josephus' writings through time, inserted certain things uh, because they, they wanted it to sound more pro-Jesus was the Messiah. However, it's interesting, they do have other translations of Josephus that didn't go through the same translators, uh, Syriac versions, or essentially Arabic versions, for instance. And when you read those, it's still the same testimony, but it is toned down some. Uh, for instance, uh, I'll read a translation from someone uh, named Agapius, uh, but then I'll comment on a, a variation of that by someone known as Michael the Syrian. So if you read that translation from Josephus, it says, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to, die, uh, to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. Now, here's where, if you go to Michael the Syrian, it seems a little more realistic in translation, where in Michael the Syrian writes in... Uh, uh, that he was thought to be the Messiah. Because a lot of people generally believe Josephus himself did not become a Christian, uh, but certainly was witnessing to the fact of these things. And then he says, concerning, that is the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Also, elsewhere in Josephus' writings, he refers to James, the brother of Christ, and talks about his execution. And when he talks about James, he refers to him as the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. So, the most reasonable thing to conclude is, yeah, Jesus was a real person. We get about as close uh, to people writing and mentioning the events of his life as we can anything. That's not even looking at the New Testament. But even if you consider the New Testament itself, like, for instance, 1 Corinthians, as we'll talk about, wide swath. Most historians believe that 1 Corinthians really was written by Paul. Uh, and that he wrote it really early, like in the early 50s A.D. or so, like within a lot, within an easy couple of decades or so of the crucifixion. And Paul himself refers to James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, so the, the testimony that Jesus actually existed and that the basic facts of his life, his crucifixion and his death, uh, and kind of the squelching of the religion, but then its rise again, are facts of history. So now let's look at the evidence of what happened next. So he died, but then what happened next? I want to focus on two main facts. One is the fact that the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty. That should be considered a fact of history. 
that whatever tomb he was placed in, and actually history supports that it probably was indeed, even if you're just going by secular history, we know from the Bible it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But even if you just look at from a secular perspective, that would also be the reasonable conclusion that it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Go figure, the Bible's right. It is a historical fact the tomb of Jesus Christ was found to be empty. It really, as a historian, looking at the evidence, it'd be hard to conclude anything else. Now, it doesn't say how it became empty. Uh, we'll come to that a little bit later. By the way, why would you conclude, histori- if you think historically at the Bible, why would you conclude that it even was probably the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, if you don't just believe the Bible as a religious, uh, holy, sacred, divine text? Well, because if you look, the Bible was written at a time when people were attacking the faith. And much of what was written in it was to defend the faith against various attackers. And who were some of the enemies of the first century Christians? It was the Sanhedrin. It was the Jews. And what you don't do when you're trying to defend yourself is actually name one of the Sanhedrin and say, you know what? It's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was even in the Sanhedrin. It's his tomb. Because all I got to do is say... There is no, what are you talking about? Here's Joseph. He says it's not his tomb. Or uh, they say there's, you're just making this name up. You don't set yourself up for failure in situations like that. But regardless of, of whose tomb a historian would think that he was placed in, we do know that it was empty. How do we know? Let me give you a few lines of reasoning and evidence. One, we have the witness of the enemies of the church that the tomb was empty. We have the witness of the enemies of the disciples and the church, that the tomb was empty. Now, sometimes you have to argue from silence, and some people say you can't prove a negative, and you can't... No, actually, you can. You can prove a negative. Uh, you can argue from silence. Just because someone doesn't say something, it does mean something if you would expect them to say something. When you look at your son point blank and say, did you steal the cookie from your brother? He just looks at you and says nothing. We can deduce something from the silence that something took place. It's not hard. We do it all the time. And in the first century, the Jews desperately wanted to disprove the claims of the church. They wanted to prove this church, this growing sect is based on a fraud. It's based on a lie. And we do have evidence of what the Jews of the days were saying. And what they were not saying is, look, we can show you the body. Let's go to the tomb. How how do you say he's resurrected when his tomb is right here? What did Peter say in that first inspired sermon in the book of Acts? He said that David's tomb is with us to this day. None of the Jewish enemies of the church pointed to the location of a body. If they did, it would have been game over. There would have been nothing left. But what they do is try to reason about why the body is missing and why you can't find a body and why the tomb is empty. In fact, we actually see an example of that. Again, just looking at the Bible as history. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we can see that this is what the Jews of the day were arguing. The Jewish authorities knew what the claim was. They knew that Christ talked like he was going to be resurrected. And so they had guards. They paid guards to be around the tomb. 
Now, understand, if you're Matthew and you're writing, you're writing to believers. You're writing to, to the faithful, uh, a history of these things, but it's a history with a purpose. You're trying to defend the faith. You're trying to strengthen them so that whenever their family and their friends come at them, you're equipping them to deal with that. And so you're addressing the claims that are going out there, the negative claims. And Matthew does that here, inspired by God to do so. Matthew 28, starting in verse 11. Speaking of the disciples going to talk about the resurrection, it says, Now while they were going, verse 11, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. That's what the Jews were saying. They didn't have to say that if there was a body, if there was no empty tomb. And so we have this evidence that that's not what the Jews were arguing. They couldn't point to a body. They couldn't say, let's just authorize opening this up. They eventually do open up tombs because they have to transfer the bones to an ossuary. That was just part of their burial customs. It wouldn't have been unusual for them to do that. And yet they couldn't do it. And so that was the argument of the Jews of the day that Matthew's trying to explain about. Now you might think, how would they know that? But part of the New Testament witnesses is that even some eventually of priestly households and stuff were converted to the faith. And so they easily would have actually known some of these things. You think it's hard to keep a secret today. It was hard to keep a secret back then as well. All right. Another piece of evidence that the tomb was empty. That alone actually would be pretty convincing, at least for me. But another piece of evidence, and this might be offensive to some of you, approximately 50% of you, but we're talking about the first century. Another piece of evidence is that in the historical records that the church created to document the resurrection, they highlight that the first witnesses were women. Which back then, if you're trying to build a credible case, you don't say women were the first witnesses. Don't get mad at me, right? Uh, you know, hashtag, you know, women's testimony counts too, you know, if you want. You know, they're not going to read it in the first century probably. But Josephus actually comments on this in his antiquities. He mentions, this is Josephus. Again, no, please no tomatoes or rocks. Josephus says, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. That's from, uh, I give you the citation for that if you want. So he did say, see, I hear some of you laughing. See, levity. Look at that. Look at that. I can't take you seriously. But he did call you bold. So, you know, you've got, you got that going for you. So if you're trying to build a fake story, uh, Benjamin and I talked about this. My, uh, he's about to get his history degree. And they do have classes in historiography where you, you talk about the principles of examining primary text and, and trying to understand if it's credible. And one of the things that hints toward the credibility of a historical account, that it really is trying to recount history, we'll see this again later, is when the historians note things that are embarrassing to their cause. Because when you're making up history, you don't do that. 
The pagans didn't. When you actually, you know, read the, some of the historical records of kings going against the Israelites, they record their victories and the rest. But then when God intervenes, you read in the Bible and it doesn't go, you suddenly, the, the account gets kind of weird in the secular history. They don't say, and our mighty king was defeated and all of our soldiers began killing each other randomly and we couldn't explain it. They just say, and you know, we kind of moved on and went on to, you know, went on to something else. And yet, this is a hallmark of historical credibility. They're actually accounting the tale and saying, actually, look, we know you guys aren't going to take us seriously, but the first ones to find the tomb were, were women. They're, they're being upfront. You know, they're being honest. And of course, we know that they would be just as credible witnesses as anybody else. It's as if you, if you wanted to make up a story, let's say that you, you walked outside and you saw there was Mr. Lucky Lyons and he's flying around like Superman. And so you come in and you're trying to convince us all. You're saying, look, I'm not kidding. Both of us saw it. Me and, and, and lying Larry. Sorry if you're Larry. I'm not, you're making up a guy. Me and lying Larry, we saw it. That's not the witness you would make up. Even if he agreed with you. Oh, yeah, I totally saw it. It's not helping your case, right? You wouldn't do that. And yet it's kind of a mark of historical credibility that they're being up front. The very first people to find were the very witnesses that most of you think are the least credible. He actually revealed himself to women first. So that's a piece of evidence that the tomb actually was found empty. And just one more. There's, there's a, so many. But the gospel accounts read like history. They don't read like tales and mythologies that are made up. Even quote-unquote Christian uh, mythologies. They read like history. There's a book that I'll, I'll recommend some of you consider if you're really interested in these kind of details. Uh, it's by an author, uh, Peter J. Williams. I really enjoyed it. It was titled, Can We Trust the Gospels? I meant to bring it as an example. It's not, it's not really a very big book, but it's very good. It's called, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, the individual who wrote it, I think, was maybe the, the head editor for the NIV. Don't hold that against him. That doesn't mean all of his ideas are bad, even if his translation is rough. Because uh, he actually presents a case explaining, not necessarily saying, you know, I'm not saying it's all it's true. He's just saying that, look, this is history. And he goes through evidences that a lot of people wouldn't even consider. Let me just give you one sampling. You know, if I were, if I were right now to make up a story about what happened in the first century... I am divided by not only 2,000 years, but a lot of geography, right? And if I'm going to put a lot of people in that story, I'm going to have to come up with their names. Well, maybe I come up with a, a Joseph, you know, and a Mary, and I come up with some of these names, and I put them all in there. Well, that might make it sound credible, but I'm probably going to come up with an Arthur, perhaps, you know, or a Bob, or, or something like that. that just were not names in the first century. How hard would it be for me to fake it in such a way that it would match the New Testament? They've gone through and statistically looked at the names in the New Testament. All the different names, like Joseph and the rest. They've looked at them statistically. How frequently are they mentioned? And they've actually looked at non-biblical records of first century Judaism and looked at how common various names are. Like say they had a Judean 101 names for your baby you know, book, right? To give people... And they found that statistically they line up. That's either you're the greatest historical forger in history because you've picked out a subtle detail that statisticians wouldn't even think to look at for millennia or you're actually telling historical tales that took place in the first century. They've even taken uh, Christian forgeries or Christian accounts. We'll actually read one for a different reason in a moment that were written, say, in Alexandria or other places, 
and their names don't match up like the four Gospels do. They don't correspond. And that's just one of tons of details that Peter Williams puts in his book. These books read like history, including the account of the empty tomb. To contrast, let me read to you a quote-unquote Christian resource. I have to sometimes say quote-unquote because sometimes people listen to audio sermons. A quote-unquote resource that was trying to be pro-Christian, trying to help quote-unquote Christians at the time, but is completely not historical base. It's called the Gospel of Peter. There are lots of fake Gospels out there by, by people that really were trying to help the faith by essentially saying, oh, uh, let's write something and title it the Gospel of Peter. Uh, I won't go into the, the morality of that. But regardless, let me read this account to you. Contra- most of you hopefully have read the Gospel accounts of the resurrection and can compare how those read to this. Okay, this is from the Gospel of Peter. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It's pretty rough. All right. Early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, which is already a mistake, uh, because they, you know, one long in fake Christianity, they begin considering the first day of the week, the quote unquote Sabbath. We'll see another evidence of that in a moment. It says early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to see the sealed tomb. Now it's got a crowd. Right? Everybody from Jerusalem is coming. They're going to wait to see what happens. Because they're telling this tale in other places, right? Other, they don't, they, they're not as concerned about the details. But during the night, before the Lord's day dawned, oh, there they go again, as the soldiers were keeping guard two by two in every watch, there came a great sound in the sky, and they saw the heavens opened, and two men descend, shining with a great light, and they drew near to the tomb. The stone which had been set on the door rolled away by itself and moved to one side, and the tomb was opened, and both of the young men went in. Oh, imagine the entire populace of Jerusalem surrounding the tomb and all of this happening. So now it says, when these soldiers saw that, they woke up the centurion and the elders, parentheses, for they also were there keeping watch. Now they're trying to cram all the elders of the Jews there as well. They're trying to condemn as many people as they can. It says, while they were yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw three men come out of the tomb. There had been only two go in, but three, I'm I'm editorializing here. Uh, It says two of them sustaining the other one, right? Helping him out and a, (laughs) and a cross following after them. So uh, you have the three guys coming out behind them is this cross sort of, (laughs) sort of hopping out like a veggie tales video or something perhaps. And then. It doesn't get better. It says the heads of the two they saw had heads that reached up to heaven. These guys are really tall. But the head of him who was led by them went beyond heaven. Messiah Zilla coming up. And it still doesn't get better. So it says they heard a voice out of the heavens saying... Have you preached unto them that sleep? The answer that was heard from the cross was yes. 
They don't even give their fake Messiah the chance to answer. The cross behind them has a mouth suddenly and says, yes, you know, I did that. Okay, that's how you tell a story that isn't historical. That's when you're just trying to tell a tale that gets people into your mythological religion. Let's be upfront. You know, when I read the Gospels, this is just now personally, this is not, I'm not talking about scholars, but sometimes I get frustrated that they leave details out. Sometimes I get frustrated that the account of one is a little hard to make fit with the account of another one. And yet all those things actually are evidence that they weren't trying to just spin a tale. They weren't getting together to try to weave something together to, to hoodwink a bunch of people. They were accounting for facts. And they wrote the facts as they knew them. And they didn't always care if it was easy to reconcile with something else. They were just trying. Now, there always is a reconciliation. All the things do go together. But what you can tell is they didn't collude to make it so. So generally, let me just wrap up this portion because we only have just a couple facts we're looking at. The empty tomb, the fact that the tomb of Jesus Christ was found empty is for the most part in general not contested. Neither by, by people who study the Bible for religious purposes nor frankly even atheistic scholars. They'll concede that. It seems pretty clear that the tomb of this teacher Jesus was found to be empty. And let me consider one more, just one more historical fact before we put some things together and talk about how some of these things are answered by some. Consider the appearances of the risen Jesus Christ, the appearances of Christ. And we can turn to a book that historians have drawn many conclusions about, non-religious historians, and that's 1 Corinthians. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15... And as we do so, it's important to recognize that even secular scholars believe that Paul wrote with a, with a, uh, an amanuensis, someone writing sometimes like a secretary, but that Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians 15. They generally estimated to have been written around 53 to 54 AD. Uh, I don't... I'm not always good with the dates. Sometimes they get things wrong based on other things. But if you do take that, the early 50s A.D., that's important. Think about it. The crucifixion happened in 31 A.D., the crucifixion and the resurrection. If they're right, and this was written only about 20 years later, then the distance between Paul writing this and the crucifixion and resurrection was only about like the distance between us and 9-11. That's recent. Now, some of you are young enough not to have been born, you know, at the time that 9-11 happened. Most of you in the room remember 9-11. Some of you even talked to people that perhaps were in New York. Some of you were in New York, perhaps, at the time. And even if you were born afterwards, you still know from the people around you that it's a fresh experience. So Paul is writing that close as he's writing 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Another reason that this is considered real history, there's a lot of reasons, but also it fits the same embarrassment principle we talked about earlier. Uh, they believe this is history because Paul talks about the church in some very troubling terms. If you're making stuff up to try to impress people with your fake religion, you don't say things like Paul did where he says, 
Oh, there's so much sexual sin amongst you guys. Get your acts together, you know. You don't write those things. You keep those things away uh, because you're just trying to write something that's essentially mythology. So scholars are, are really convinced. They do believe that 1 Corinthians was re- Even the seculars. We, of course, know that it was. But even secular scholars admit, yes, Paul, Paul literally did uh, uh, author this. So that said, we're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we say in verse 3. Where he says, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Now before I I move on, let me highlight what he's saying. This is 20-ish years after the crucifixion resurrection. And he's not saying these things for the first time. He's saying, this is what I told you before which I received before this. You're talking about the origin of these things, even from a purely secular, scholarly standpoint. Well, you don't believe perhaps Christianity is true. You can't say this thing has developed over decades and decades and centuries to be some kind of myth. They were talking about these kinds of things demonstrably within a small handful of years. So again, verse 3, starting there. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, we understand that to be after three complete days, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, using his Aramaic name, that's Peter, then by the twelve, that is the the full complement of the apostles, including, uh, that would be the one, that was added. Verse 6, and that uh, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And James here is speaking of the brother of Jesus, James. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Then Mr. Weston talked about some of the timing of some of these things in terms of the history of Paul's relationship to these things uh, in his first Bible study in this series. So that's the account in 1 Corinthians 15. Now let's consider what he just said. Let's consider what he's, what he's doing with his, with his case. Because the question we have before us is whether or not it's a fact of history that the disciples really did believe they saw the risen Jesus Christ. Regardless of the explanation for that, the facts are that yes, these people did believe that then. You look at actually what he's saying and look through the names that he's given. He does mention himself, Paul does, but actually he also mentions James. We saw that in verse 7, James. Now, this is kind of important. You might hold your place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but jump over to John chapter 7. It's actually one of those points in favor of the book of John as being considered something historical and not just religious propaganda. Because history records, even Josephus, secular history, records that James was a key figure in Christianity. The Bible explains that James was, uh, was running the headquarters church Right? The church's version of Charlotte back then was, was uh, Jerusalem. And James was running that church. 
And so he was a key figure in Christianity. And if you're just making propaganda about your faith, you don't make your leaders look bad. You don't record their foibles and such. And yet, God always does. And so we read about one of James's foibles here in John chapter 7. Uh, it mentions that the feast was coming up. So verse 3, uh, Jesus' brothers therefore said to him, verse 3, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And you might think, man, they should believe the most. They're like firsthand witnesses, but it's also their brother, right? Do you have a sibling that is just like, am I, is my sibling the Messiah? I don't think so, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, and his brothers did not believe in him. James did not believe that his brother was the Messiah, and yet he's actually named here amongst the witnesses of the resurrected Christ. But go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this, I think, really highlights exactly what Paul is doing and how remarkable it is. Understand, these people he's naming are still alive. He's saying, you can go talk to James, his brother. You can go talk to Peter. You can talk to the rest of the twelve you know, those who were his actual disciples, uh, his first disciples. Verse 6, he says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, though some have fallen asleep. Again, think about it. Since 9-11, in the last 20 years or so, do we know some people who have died since then? I do. But most of the people I knew 20 years ago are still alive today. A lot of you are those people. And Paul is doing, this is, you know, we try to do things with biblical precedent. And what do we like to do on tomorrow's world? Hey, don't just believe me, believe your Bible, right? You know, go, go look at, go look at a witness to the things that, that I say or that I am saying are true. Go look to that. That's what Paul is doing. He was one of the first tomorrow's world presenters, you know, not the first, but he was one of them. And what does he say? Don't believe me. There's literally 500 people that I can point you to. And we know they traveled. Paul himself traveled. And these are matters of life and death. He's saying, yes, I'm asking you to believe that this man rose from the grave. But you don't have to take my word for it. I can literally give you a small town's worth of people that you can go and talk to. I can tell you their names. Yes, some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. And they saw the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. Again, if that is a bold gamble, that's not what you do unless you know it's true that these people truly believe they saw the risen Jesus Christ. We know it's true because the Bible records it, of course. Again, let me go back to me trying to, to fabricate a tale. Uh, what if, for some reason, I wanted you to think that, I know this is a weird story, but it's one I always use, and forgive me, it's the one I go to and I can't think of another one, apparently. Let's say I wanted you to believe, because most of you that I know, as best I can tell, we're not at my wedding to my wife almost 30 years ago. And let's say I was wanting to weave a tale that it was the most fantabulous wedding you've ever seen, that God has clearly ordained our wedding in such a way that makes it way better than all of yours. So what if I said it was amazing the moment he said, I now, you know, present to you, Mr. And Mrs. Wallace Smith. 
He just suddenly started rising into the sky, the minister did, and began glowing. And as he spun in place, rose petals began shooting out of his coat sleeves, showering the crowd. It was, it was a miracle, clearly. God has ordained our wedding as something for eternity, you know. And you say, well, that's, that's amazing, you know. Is there anyone, it's also pretty crazy. Can I check up? Is there anybody I can talk to? He said, well, yeah, you, ah, well, you know. Uh, no, 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 I, it's not really anyone you can ask. I, I think everybody was out. There was a really good cheese dip outside and a lot of them just happened to choose to go get the cheese dip at that moment. I can tell you what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't give you the registry. I wouldn't give you the list of all the people that came and that were present because I made up something. And Paul is telling you, no kidding, you go to Jerusalem, you'll find almost 500 people. They will tell you exactly what I'm saying. They saw this man alive again. Actually, the testimony is so strong that even atheist scholars generally do believe that the disciples believe they saw the risen Jesus Christ. They had some kind of experience that caused... They don't believe it was the resurrected Jesus Christ because that would kind of blow the game for them, right? They don't believe it, but they do believe that Peter, Paul... These people, that they do believe they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. The history that backs that up is just too strong. In fact, there's a particular uh, skeptical critic by the name of Gerd Ludemann. I pick him because I just like saying Gerd Ludemann. But he admits this, and he's one of the ones that has an alternate theory for how this could be that's not a resurrection. He, He admits, he says, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. So we don't, you don't doubt that. They believed that they saw Christ. So these are two historical facts. There's an empty tomb with no body to be found with a desperate, powerful uh, faith and religious leaders and the rest who would have loved to have procured that body and showed it. And you had a whole bunch of people that believe they saw him alive again. There's not that many witnesses to Elvis, as far as I know, right? Uh, All right, so here's the key thing. How do we explain these facts? This is the crux of the matter. It's where everything comes together. How do we explain these facts? Well, there are a lot of ideas out there how to explain them, because no one wants to believe Jesus rose from the dead. So they come up with other theories, and some of them are real doozies. I've read quite a few. Here's one. This is my favorite. I read all, there was all, I didn't read the whole book because after a while you realize this is not worth my time. But this is one. Uh, is it possible, some will suggest, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross? That he just almost died? That while he was in the tomb in the cool of the air, he recovered and then came out and just claimed to have been resurrected? Some will go so far as to suggest that that was his plan in the first place to just say, man, I'm going to get the Romans kill me, but I'm going to survive because I've really been eating healthy these days or something. And I want to trick all these people into saying that, that I died. Well, one, this is really dumb. This is a really dumb idea. And some ideas, it's okay to make fun of them because they're dumb. And that is a dumb one. Uh, the Romans knew how to execute people. They were very good at it. The idea that you're going to trick a Roman soldier whose life or death sometimes 
hinges on making sure somebody's dead, right? You pass that body and that's when he pulls out the sword. Ha ha, I wasn't dead. You know, now you are. Uh, so they knew what they were doing. This was their job. Their job was to make sure none of these people survived. And they suffered an agonizing death. They were brutally efficient and knew how to recognize a dead body. Secondly, if that was his plan, was to survive a Roman crucifixion and then escape a tomb with a giant stone in front of it with his weakened, beaten, stabbed up body, that is the worst planner uh, in the world of building a religion. Uh, but not to mention the historical facts. Again, we've already heard uh, Tacitus, Josephus. It is a historical fact that this man was actually crucified and was dead. So let's all agree. Let's not spend any more time on that one. That's actually pretty dumb. Uh, next, and that does highlight, though, this is how desperate they are to avoid the conclusion. When someone comes up with a really dumb idea to explain away your idea, it's a good sign you're on to something, right? But that's how desperate they are. Here's a few more. Uh, one, is it possible the disciples all hallucinated the resurrected Jesus? That is actually one of uh, the most common. It's very common. Uh, it's super popular. And no, we actually looked at the historical evidence. It can't be that they simply hallucinated a resurrected Jesus because the tomb was actually empty. Right? I mean, if you hallucinate someone, it doesn't make their body evaporate in the grave. Not to mention the fact that as much as it's talked about, this vast shared hallucination that could somehow impact 500 people is nonsense. That just doesn't happen. And as I think it was N.T. Wright who highlighted this really powerfully, if I recall, I could be wrong, but there was nothing in the Jewish religion that would prompt them to expect something. There's nothing, they, you read the history in the New Testament, how they're trying to convince Jewish people. I know you're expecting a Messiah that's going to come and, and, and retake Judea and push back the Romans and the rest. I know that's what you've been expecting. You know, the leaders have been expecting it. You need to listen to us. The, you're misunderstanding the prophecies. The powerful Messiah would actually come and die. He would actually die and he's going to come back in. It, was, it wasn't anything their religion expected. And all these people are going to hallucinate Something that nothing in their pre-existing faith would even prime them to think. It's just absolutely nonsense. Finally, is it possible the disciples simply lied? Is it possible that it was a conspiracy among the disciples and that the original Jews in the first century saying that they stole the body, that they were actually right? The disciples conspired and said, hey, we got a plan. We could be pretty powerful, even though our teacher is dead and everybody's disappointed. Let's steal the body and then tell everybody that he rose from the grave. Well, this is actually my, probably the part of this, all of this that I've gained the most out of. And that is that no, that is not a reasonable thing to think. We have the witness of the apostles and the early disciples that not only did they say that they saw the risen Christ, but they were willing to be tortured to death to back that up. That when confronted by the authorities, and we have records, we have uh, Pliny the Younger, we have historical records of what they did with Christians. 
Uh, we have not only what we've read about Tacitus, and I won't go into the details of the tortures that Tacitus talks about. I've, I think I've mentioned them before in another sermon. But Pliny would talk about how they would take these people that are they're worshiping Christ like a god and say, just just admit, you know, just instead of sacrificing to him, sacrifice to one of the other gods. Just admit that this isn't God, and, and, and we'll let you go. And they wouldn't, and they would be executed or tortured. History suggests the death of the apostles in general, most of them, was not pleasant. That some themselves were crucified, that some were dragged uh, by horses through the streets. You don't go through that for a lie. You don't have people telling you the torture will stop if you will just admit that you stole the body. If you will just admit that all of this is a conspiracy and a lie. And history, which most of the history back then was written by the people antagonistic to Christianity. And none of it records a single apostle or disciple of that group. Peter, James, the rest saying, you know, you're right. It's all fake. No, it, it showed they, they put their entire lives into that moment and agreed to do exactly what he asked of them. If you turn to Acts chapter 1. When Jesus Christ commissioned them, they asked him, it says in Acts chapter 1, hey, is, is this the time? Is this when it's all going to happen? Is this when the kingdom's going to be restored? And he tells them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. This is verse 7, which the Father has put in his own authority. But verse 8, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's exactly what they were. And it's easy to think of that statement as simply representing their going out and preaching. Like we could think of our own quote-unquote witness as just the teaching that we do and forget that it's our example that makes that teaching real. For the apostles, they could have gone out and done all the preaching in the world. And if they had all died cushy deaths, surrounded by their loved ones, supported in their suffering by the people who loved them most and the people that appreciated them as their uh, religious leaders, you'd start to think, you know, these guys, they had it pretty good. I can see why they made this up. Look at what it got for them. I, I wish I could be taken care of that well in my death. And instead, they had to experience the death of martyrs at the hands of butchers and madmen. And could respond to each of them, I will not deny that I saw this man alive and that he is God because I know no matter what you do to me, the moment my life is over, regardless of how I've come to that point, the next thing I will see is him. What they were willing to experience has rung forward in time for 2,000 years. You know, in Jesus Christ's final prayer, in terms of on this earth with his disciples before, before Passover, 
not his final, final prayer, but as one with his disciples there before Passover, we read about how he said, uh, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, we're wrapping up. In John 17, he says, I do not pray for these alone at the table, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He knew his apostle's word was going to have to be amazing. And it's easy sometimes as we go through difficulties and trials when we don't see perhaps the purpose of it, it's easy to fail to realize that even though it is some of our darkest days, God may be using that suffering and trial to achieve some of the most remarkable good that we could imagine. And that's exactly what he did with the lives and deaths of the apostles. They weren't pretty deaths, but it's because of those we know this testimony is true. Brethren, it is extremely reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. When you believe Jesus Christ rose from the grave, you are believing in the best explanation of the facts. And because he rose from the grave, everything we're going to talk about and celebrate over the fall holy days is absolutely true.